you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, and as you turn there, let me offer a word of prayer. Holy Spirit, thank you for making our hearts full and glad this morning. In the singing of your praises and the lifting of voices, in the receiving of pastors and ordination servants, thank you for the gladness you have given us. Lord Jesus, thank you for opening the the way into the Father's presence for us. The shedding of your blood on the cross and in the glory of your resurrection and ascension, you have made known to us how to come back home. It's through faith in you. Father, thank you for the inspiration of your word. Words penned over 2,000 years ago with right now relevance. Help us to receive your word this morning in faith. These will be cold, dead letters to us unless we believe. And so we pray, help us, O Lord, as we come into your presence by the preaching of your word, help us to show up, to be attentive, to be full of faith and eager, knowing that you speak by your word. Help us to turn from unbelief. Grant, O Lord, that we would quit our people-pleasing. Help us, O Lord, to to follow hard after you, we pray. Give us more of yourself. We are a needy people. We need more of you. We want more of you. Show us more of yourself. We pray with Moses, let us see your glory. Even a glimpse as you pass by would fill our souls with delight. Show us yourself, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. How far would you go to live for Jesus? Pay attention to the question. How far would you go to live for Jesus? I read yesterday um, in a book, the author said that some people would rather die for Jesus than live for Jesus. His point was that sometimes we find ourselves in situations where actually to die as a martyr would be easier than to live as a saint. And so sometimes there are Christians who, in that sense, would find it easier, would, in that sense, rather die for Jesus than to actively live for Jesus. I wonder how that question sits with you this morning. I wonder if there's something in our walk this morning that tempts us to think that it doesn't take all of that to live for Jesus. I wonder if there's something in our walk this morning that tempts us to think that obedience and sacrifice and suffering or unpopularity and rejection 
are maybe just too high a price to pay when living for Jesus. I wonder what motivates us as disciples this morning. Because our motives will show in answer to that question, how far are we willing to go in living for Jesus? False motive won't go very far. Right motive will help us not only die for Jesus, but follow him all the way to the end. And that's my prayer for us as a church. That's my prayer for me as a Christian. My prayer for all of you. And I pray that as we look into God's word, Mark chapter 15, that the Lord would help us in this regard. Now, Mark 15 happens on one long day. Notice in verse 1, it says, as soon as it was morning. This is the morning following Jesus' trial in Mark chapter 14. They were at the high priest's house last night. They're at the high priest's house that morning. They have gathered, the text says, to consult. And the day ends, notice in verse 42, when evening had come. By this point, Jesus has been tried and mocked and crucified. And the events in Mark chapter 15 happen in about four or five different places. Notice again, it starts in verse 1 at the high priest's courtyard at his home. Verse 16, it moves to Pilate's palace and office. Verse 21, Jesus is led out to Golgotha. Verse 46 ends at the cave where Jesus was buried. As we track through this chapter again, our main thought is this. We must be honest about our motivations if we will follow Jesus to the end. I want to think about this text in four points. Number one, unbelief can get really ugly. The unbelieving religious leaders in this text get really ugly. Number two, people-pleasing will lead us to compromise. People-pleasing political leaders, Pilate in this text, compromise the truth. Number three, Jesus remains focused on his ministry. Jesus remains focused on his ministry. And number four, it ends at the cave where Jesus was buried. Disciples will join Jesus in his suffering. Disciples will join Jesus in his suffering. Let me read for us Mark chapter 15, and then I want us to sort of consider the characters in this chapter and what they teach us about following Jesus. Mark 15, beginning in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he, Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, 
do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And a pilot said, again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. But he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered, a loud cry, and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, 
since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, taken him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Point number one, unbelieving religious leaders can get real ugly. Unbelief can get ugly. Again, verse 42 says it was a day of preparation. That is the day before the Sabbath. The day of preparation is a day when religious Jews would take care of all of their business and their earthly affairs uh, so that they wouldn't have to work on the Sabbath, which would have been law-breaking, which would have been sin. And so the day of preparation is when you get all of your affairs in order to worship God freely and without distraction on the next day. And you'll remember, this is the time of the Passover. So not only was it a Sabbath, but it was a special celebration of God's deliverance of Israel from bondage in Egypt. So they were, notice, meant to be preparing to worship God and to celebrate salvation. The question is, how did they prepare? How did the religious leaders prepare on the day of preparation? Well, first of all, the religious leaders were condemning an innocent man. You see that there in verse 1 and verse 3, they gather together for the consultation among the elders, the scribes, and the whole council. In verse 3, the chief priests accused them of many things. They've already, back in chapter 14, 64, and 65, sort of condemned him for what they saw as blasphemy. And now in this consultation, they're trying to figure out how to bring it all to an end. Since chapter 14, verse 1, they have been plotting for some way to kill Jesus. Now they've got him in the courtroom. Now they've condemned him falsely. Now they need to figure out how to execute him. They spent the day of preparation condemning an innocent man. But notice now they also spent the day of preparation calling for his murder. Look back at verses 11 to 14. The chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead of Jesus. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. They shout down Pilate with calls for murder. They had taken him to Pilate in verse 1, bound. They had to take him to Pilate because uh, Israel had been conquered by Rome. And under Roman law, no one had the authority to sort of carry out a death sentence except Rome. And so they take him to Pilate to try and get the state to do what they couldn't do legally. And they had taken him to Pilate so that Pilate could put him to death because tomorrow is the Sabbath. And if they had murdered them himself, themselves and touched a dead body, then according to the laws of Judaism, they would have been unclean for worship. 
See what's happening here. They're getting the state to do their dirt so that they can look religious tomorrow. They're calling for murder. And with that same mouth, they will sing the hymns of Israel the next day. And not only that, notice how they spent the day of preparation. They spent it mocking a dying man. Look in verses 29 to 32. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even the thief crucified next to him mocked him. What kind of wickedness must exist in the human heart to mock a man as he dies? What kind of depravity must be in the human soul to look at a man suffering in excruciating pain and joke him? What kind of unbelief and blindness must exist, must lay over the heart, must lay over the eyes for that man to be the son of God and you mock him as he dies? See how they move from private plotting to public protest to poking fun and mocking. It's an amazing unbelief that leads to an utterly amazing ugliness. Next day, again, these people will put on their best robes, worship God in the synagogue. They will lead God's people in singing praises and offering prayers and making sacrifices and teaching the scripture. They prepared by murdering the Son of God. Power-hungry, jealous religious leaders are capable of almost anything, beloved. And if we would follow Jesus, we must avoid this kind of leader, like the plague. That's why a local church should give thanks, as we were just doing a moment ago, for faithful and godly leaders. Do, do not take that for granted, beloved. Do not take the kindness of God in giving spiritual leaders to watch over our souls. Do not take that for granted. 1 Timothy 5, 17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. teaching. And today we have officially ordained two men that we believe serve well and who deserve double honor. Men who shepherd you in times that you don't see. Like this Thursday night after Bible study in an elders meeting that went to 1 a.m. It's not uncommon. Who serve despite the everyday pressures of family and work who find a way to shepherd you even as they attend to those other responsibilities. It's no easy task. Who spend hours studying God's word and preparing to teach and to lead, to counsel and to shepherd and disciple. Not for thanks, not for applause, but for love. The love of Christ and love of his church. We have pastors who are worthy of double honor. These men, again, are not perfect. They would be the first ones to tell you that. 
but they also are not motivated by power or jealousy or control the way the religious leaders of Jesus' day were. So congregation, pray for your shepherds. Support them. Encourage them. Respect them for the men of God that they are. And uphold them that their, as Hebrews says, their ministry might be a joy and not a burden. And to my fellow pastors, let us hold one another accountable when it comes to our motivations for following Jesus and our motivations for the ministry. Let us be sure we have a sincere love for Jesus and a sincere, lo- a sincere love for the sheep. And let us develop in the sort of leadership culture of the elders uh, an accountability where we quickly, if we suspect that something might be off in one of our hearts, we speak into that as we do. We, we examine whether or not there, there might be pride or a lust for power or jealousy, double dealing, or anything that slaughters the sheep rather than shepherds the sheep. Let us correct one another so promptly that the congregation never has to be burdened with admonishment or confrontation. We regularly hear news of pastors and leaders who fall morally or who feed upon the sheep. May God preserve Anacostia River Church from this tragedy as long as we exist as a church. May we be men who check ourselves at the level of private motives long before it becomes public scandal. And beloved, pray for us in this. As we see in the religious leaders, how they spent their day of preparation. They spent it murdering an innocent man. But now consider Pilate. Pilate teaches us that there's another motivation that can be in work in terms of how we follow Jesus or whether we follow Jesus. And that motivation, if the religious leaders were motivated, verse 11, by jealousy, or envy, the the other motivation that's at work here is people-pleasing or the fear of man. Notice Pilate on a day of preparation. What does he do? Well, the first thing he does is avoid the truth. That's what we see in verses 2 to 5. Verse 2, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he, Jesus, answered him, you have said so. Now, Mark's writing style is very quick, very short. He doesn't give us a lot of details. He just keeps it moving. And so this is all we really have of that conversation in Mark's gospel. But John sort of unpacks this this conversation. He records more of it for us. And there we can see how it is Pilate is ducking the truth and the implications of the truth. Look with me in John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verses 33 to 38. It's the same scene. So Pilate entered his headquarters again. Called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Verse 34. Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? That's called deflection. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What what have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, 
And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? You see it clearly there, don't you? Pilate was not interested in the truth. Instead of accepting the truth, he he attacked the very idea of truth itself. As a governor and a judge, he had one job. And that job was to find the truth and to follow the truth to wherever it led. But he's being political instead. He fit in right well in D.C. He's ducking and dodging the question. Listen, beloved, if we refuse to admit the truth, we can never live by the truth. Following Jesus requires that we be truth people who embrace it and follow it wherever it goes. But Pilate wasn't done there. Notice now, Pilate not only avoided the truth, but on the day of preparation, Pilate was busy satisfying the crowds. That's what we see in verses 15 and 16. So Pilate, going back to Mark 15. So Pilate, it says there in verse 15, wishing to satisfy the crowd. Now, beloved, when it comes to political power, Pilate was the most powerful person in the scene. He's a, he's a representative of Rome. He's governor over uh, Jerusalem. He has the power to pass a death sentence if if that's what he saw fit. But on that day, in that moment, there was actually something more powerful than Pilate. And that was Pilate's fear of man. He's worried about the crowds because the crowds are like, don't make us tell Caesar. You supported another king. You know, the crowds are like, crucify him. In fact, give to us a proven insurrectionist who had tried to overthrow the government and had murdered some people. Now, you know you're fearing man when you know someone is innocent, and the choice is to release the innocent man or to release the man who's already in prison for murder and insurrection. But having already rejected the truth, all that's left for him is to fear the people. And the fear of man, Pilate, frees Barabbas and sentences Jesus. Ed Welch has written a wonderful book called When People Are Big and God Is Small. He writes this, the fear of man can be summarized this way. We replace God with people. Instead of a biblically guided fear of the Lord, we fear others. He adds this, what or who we fear will control you. And all he's doing is really unpacking what Proverbs 29 verse 25 says when it says, the fear of man lays a snare, a trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Now, when we have political leaders or religious leaders or family leaders or workplace leaders who try to lead based on opinion polls and the angry demands of the crowd, they become slaves of the crowd instead of slaves of Christ. And they will compromise the truth rather than live by it. Notice one more thing about Pilate. As a consequence, he abused his power. He avoided the truth. He pleased the crowds. And that led him to abuse his power. See the end of verse 15. And having scourged Jesus, that is, beat him with whips, he delivered him to be crucified. He had the power, 
to do what was right. But instead, to satisfy the crowds, he abused that power to do what was wrong. Beloved, power in the hands of corrupt people is deadly. If our political leaders are motivated by people-pleasing, then their actions cannot be God-pleasing. Remember what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He asks these rhetorical questions. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We cannot serve God and man. If we serve man, we sin against God. If we serve God, we cannot fear man. So what does Pilate teach us about following Jesus? Three quick lessons. You've heard them already. Embrace the truth and its consequences. If we learn anything from Pilate's life, it's it's that we must embrace the truth and its consequences. And I mean really hold tight to the truth of God's word, beloved. Don't treat truth as if it's Plato. If it's something something that we can shape and mold to our liking. Truth is meant to shape us to God's liking. And so we want to embrace the truth and to be shaped by it. In fact, this is Jesus's prayer for us. Did you know that? Just Just a night or two before what we're reading in Mark 15, Jesus prayed for us in John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer. In John 17, verse 17, he prays to the Father for the disciples that he would, the Father would sanctify us in the truth. And then he says, your word is truth. Sanctify is just a, a fancy religious word that means to sit aside, to sit something aside as belonging to God and for God's use. So Jesus is praying for Christians that we would be set apart from the world and set aside as belonging to God and special to God for God's use. And the way in which we get set aside in that way is through the word of God, which is the truth. We're seeing here what happens when we don't embrace the truth. We can't be sanctified. We won't be set apart. We will drift toward the world and do the things the world does. And we will pierce ourselves through with sorrow. And the reason we have the Bible is so we can know God. And we can know what God has done for us. And we can know how to be related to God. And know how to live to please God. So we want to embrace the truth of God's word with a G.I. Joe Kung Fu grip and never let it go. That reference is too old for some of y'all. Hold tight. The second thing we learn from Pilate's life when it comes to following Jesus, that we want to be honest about the fear of man and repent of it. We want to be honest about it. We all, at least sometimes, And in some circumstances, we fear man rather than God. I mean, to quote from Ed Welch again, he writes this, Scripture gives us three basic reasons why we fear other people. Number one, we fear people because they can expose and humiliate us. Number two, we fear people because they can reject, ridicule, or despise us. 
Number three, we fear people because they can attack, oppress, or threaten us. Do any of those describe you at least some of the time? Listen, the more we fear these things, the more we are controlled by what others say, think, or do. The temptation would be to to give in to that fear, to comply with the crowds, to just sort of try to get along or to try to not be seen, to please people. We think if we give in to that temptation that that's the way for us to be free, but actually, beloved, that's the way for us to be trapped. The opposite is the truth. That fear of man and its control goes, grows stronger the more we give into it. We can end up like Pilate, satisfying the crowd rather than Jesus. Now, wherever that is happening, beloved, we need to confess it for the sin that it is. That we have made God small and people big. And so people have become functional idols in our lives. And, and we have not properly worshipped God as we should. We should confess that and we should turn back to God in faith and remind ourselves that God is bigger than anything we might fear. I love the way Pastor John O. put this recently. He said, God is your biggest problem's biggest problem. God is your biggest problem's biggest problem. So however big our problem is, however much fear it it produces in our hearts, the solution to that fear is someone bigger, which is God. And so we want to turn back to him in service. And finally, we learn from Pilate's life that as Christians, we ought to use power, not abuse power. We ought to use power for the blessing of others, especially the vulnerable and the marginal, the poor and the discriminated against and the left out and the abused. Proverbs 31 Verses 8 and 9, King Lemuel's mother is teaching him how to be king. And in verse 8 and 9, she says, basically, uh, open your mouth and speak up for the vulnerable. Open your mouth and speak up for the destitute and the despised. That's the purpose of power from a, from a, politi- from a Christian perspective. From a political perspective, power is about amassing influence and controlling others. But the kingdom flips the world upside down. Those who lead us actually serve us. And the purpose of any influence we have as Christians, whether we work on Capitol Hill or serve in the church or in the workplace or in our homes, the purpose of any influence we have is, in fact, to look out for those who have less. So let us use power or influence to serve others, never to abuse others, if we would follow Jesus in the way that he walked. Which brings us to number three. What do we see of Jesus on this day of preparation? We see Jesus remaining focused on the mission that God had given him. And we can see at least three things about Jesus in this text that that show us his, his focus and his motivation to complete what God had called him to do. Number one, it's striking to me. We see Jesus on this day of preparation evangelizing the lost evangelizing the lost. That's basically what was happening in that conversation with Pilate. When Jesus is asking Pilate, now, do you say that I'm the king of the Jews or somebody else has said that about me? Do you believe the truth about me or are you just repeating some things that you've heard? He's trying to sort of get Pilate in a proper relationship with the truth that Pilate might come to confess that he is Lord. 
and is striking on the cross. Notice verse 27 of Mark 15. You remember he's, he's crucified with two thieves, one on his left hand, one on his right hand. Again, Mark doesn't give us a lot of details, but Luke's gospel does. And you remember in Luke's gospel, one of the thieves was, 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 was mocking Jesus and deriding Jesus. And the other thieves spoke up and said, man, what you talking about? We getting crucified just like he is. And we deserve it because we stole some stuff. And then he turns to Jesus and he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus gives this promise, today you will be with me in paradise. All the way to the cross, as he is suffering and dying, Jesus is saving people. Jesus is evangelizing. Jesus is telling people how to enter into paradise, trying to get them to embrace the truth about who he is and the gift of God through him. What was he doing on the day of preparation? Trying to prepare us for the day of salvation. Notice the second thing that we see Jesus doing in this text. He's not only evangelizing, he's fulfilling the scriptures. Verses 21 to 26 gives us details about Jesus' crucifixion. I don't know if you noticed it when I read through Mark 15. If you could remember back to the reading of Psalm 22, Speedy did a wonderful job reading the 22nd Psalm for us. That in the 22nd Psalm, there are all these details, all these things that David is writing about in terms of his sort of suffering. But these were not things that David ever suffered. David was speaking prophetically in that psalm. He was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus here on the cross is fulfilling all that David wrote in Psalm 22, the dividing of the garments, the casting of lots, being surrounded by enemies, the strong bulls of Bashan, Psalm 22 puts it. All the details of Scripture are here being fulfilled in the life of Jesus as he completes the ministry, the earthly ministry the Lord had given him. All that God promised to do by sending a Savior, Jesus completes. That's why all God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. He fulfills all that God promised his old covenant people. Now notice the third thing. He's not only evangelizing, he's not only fulfilling the scripture, but number three, he dies for sinners. That's what we see in verses 33 to 38. Notice again the cry in verse 34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And where does that come from? It comes from Psalm 22, verse 1. In this moment, God the Father forsook, that is, he abandoned God the Son. We sang it in a hymn this morning. The Father turned his face away. That line does a good job of capturing what we have here. When the Bible says in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, it's, of course, talking about Jesus before his incarnation being eternally with God the Father. And that, and that prepositional phrase, with God, sort of carries with, the, carries with it the idea that he was with God face to face in eternal communion and love. And for all of eternity, the father had looked into the face of his son with pleasure. And the son had looked into the face of the father with pleasure. And they had enjoyed that unbroken communion for all of eternity, right up to this moment in history. When the son of God is crucified, 
and suffers the judgment of God the Father against sin in our place. And that judgment is separation from God. And here in this moment on the cross, as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Something that had never in the history of the universe happened, happened. The Father turned his face away. And darkness crawled over the noonday sun for three hours. So horrible the judgment. This is how Jesus spends the preparation day, dying for sinners, but not just dying for sinners, but also opening the way for sinners to come back to God. Notice how that paragraph ends in verse 38. It says, after Jesus had breathed his last, the Bible says there, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It's a miracle. Remember, Jesus was marched outside the city. They've taken him to Calvary. They've taken him to Golgotha, the place of the skull. He's hanging out there sort of as an outcast, rejected. The temple is inside the city, on a mound, away from Golgotha. And what happens on that cross affects what happens in the temple. And this tearing of the, of the, of the curtain was a, a tearing of that thing that divided the people of God from the holy place of God. Because in the temple, the curtain separated the worshipers from the holy place where the presence of God lived. And only the high priest could go into that place and, and go in there with certain sacrifices on behalf of the people. But the people could not make that approach. Now, when Jesus dies and the curtain is torn and his body is broken and he gives himself for our sins, guess what happens? The thing that divided us from God, the thing that kept us from God, the thing that kept us outside of the holy place has now been removed so that now we become a kingdom of priests. We become a new people who can minister to God in his presence. The holy place becomes our place. So he is there finishing the Father's work, dying for our sins and opening a way for us to come back to God in holiness and not fear. Friend, if you're not yet a Christian, Jesus is still pleading with you to believe, to believe the truth about him. Even as I preach this sermon and open God's word and explain God's word to you, God is uh, pleading through me, pleading through the preaching with you to be reconciled to him, to come back to him. You, you may not know this about yourself, but this is one of the things the Bible says about humanity that's true, that sometimes we really only discover after we become Christians how true it is. The Bible says that if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't trust him to pay the penalty for your sins and you don't serve him as your Lord and your God, the Bible says that actually you are hostile toward God. You are an enemy of God. And you may not have felt that way waking up this morning. You, you might have thought you were doing something good. I'll, I'll do something. I'll go to church today. Pastor Tim, Pastor Bob Petunia being ordained, I'll go encourage them. Or I see the sign out front over at the theater. I'm going to see what's happening over there. We're glad you're here but you weren't here just to be nice to us. You were here to hear this message that if you're not yet a Christian, you are separated from God, 
that you are in danger of God's judgment. That the judgment that Jesus suffered on the cross for your, for your sins and my sins, that what he did for you may not apply to you because you don't yet believe. You haven't accepted it. It's like, it's like you got a, a certified note from the bank saying, we've got $10 billion over here for you. All you need to do is come sign the account and it's yours. But you never go by the bank and sign the account. What good is that $10 billion to you if you never receive it? And so this morning, I want to plead with you to receive what God has done for you, to accept it, to believe in it. It is true that Jesus is the son of God. It is true that he was crucified for your sins. It is true that three days later, he was raised from the grave to prove that he defeated death for you, to prove that his his sacrifice was accepted by God. He rose from the grave to prove that the curtain has been torn in two, and now you have a way back to God. And that way is repentance and faith, to turn from sin and put your trust in Jesus to receive the $10 billion times 10 billion that is the inheritance that we get from God through Christ. If you would put your faith in him, believe in him, you will be saved from hell and saved from judgment and sanctified as God's special people and set aside for God's eternal love and joy. This is what God offers to you. It is good news. It's for you, sinners. It's for you, struggler. It's for you, lost person, unbelieving. You don't have to stay that way. Today is the day of salvation. The preparation day is over. Today is the day to put your faith in Jesus and live for him. Because when you live for him, you'll never die. Eternal life will be yours. You want to know more about that? Talk with us after the service. Let us explain more to you. Let us answer your questions. But whatever you do today, repent from sin and believe in Jesus. Amen? So we should conclude by looking at the, the final group of people in this text. Notice how the disciples in various ways Join Jesus in his suffering. So if you decide to follow Jesus, then these become pictures of what it looks like to follow Jesus, okay? So what's interesting is that the apostles, the main 12, they don't appear in this chapter because by the end of chapter 14, they've all run away, right? The bosses done got scared and bailed. They're hiding. And what we're left with are disciples here who who are not among the leadership and disciples here that in that society would largely have been alienated and marginalized, they come into center stage. Notice now, number, the first, Simon of Cyrene. See him there in verse 21? Verse 21 says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, this is striking. Because, you know, John, as I said, John doesn't waste any words. John hardly introduces anybody in his gospel. He just keeps it moving. Almost everybody's anonymous. But look at how many details he gives us about Simon. He's from Cyrene. He's coming from the countryside into the city. Uh, he is Alexander and Rufus's dad. Rufus is mentioned. There is a Rufus mentioned in one of Paul's letters. Maybe this Rufus becomes a companion of the apostle Paul. We don't know. And tradition says that Simon became a bishop of an early church. 
Cyrene is a city in North Africa, in Libya. So tradition holds that this might have been an African, but also in, in, in Cyrene, there was a Jewish population of about 100,000 people. So it could be Jewish from the diaspora or both. It could be an African Jew in Jerusalem for the Passover. They compel him to carry Jesus' cross. As Simon carried the cross behind Jesus, it becomes for us in a symbolic sense the very first Christian. He joined the Lord in his suffering. Now, this is what's real dope. In, in Luke 9 and other places, Jesus frequently teaches that you cannot be a disciple unless you pick up your cross and follow him. But Simon ain't carrying his cross. Simon is carrying Jesus' cross. Simon is entering into the suffering of the Son of God as he makes his way to Golgotha, as he makes his way to Calvary. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, that, that the sufferings of Christ overflow into the Christian's life, just as the comfort of Christ overflows into our lives. And so to become a Christian is in some sense to enter into spiritually the suffering of Christ. And that's what Simon does. And it may be that to follow Jesus, we enter into some suffering for the sake of the cross for the rest of our lives. He carries that cross all the way to the end. And what humility this is for Jesus. He's the son of God with all power, allowing one of his creatures to help him in his suffering, in his pain. Simon tells us we must identify with Jesus in his suffering. But notice now the Roman guard in verse 39. He's standing at his post when Jesus dies. He hears Jesus cry out. He sees Jesus breathe his last breath. And verse 49 records the Roman soldier's words. Truly, this man was the son of God. Now, I imagine this soldier has seen a lot of people crucified before. This was a common tactic for the Roman government. But on that day, the soldier saw some things that he hadn't seen before. He saw the sky grow dark at noonday for three hours. He, he witnessed Jesus calling out so powerfully. And something about the Savior's death answered for him the question that hangs over this entire gospel. What kind of son of God is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That, that question gets settled for him as he beholds the death of the son of God. And he cries out what should have been cried out by the religious leaders, what should have been cried out by Pilate, what should have been cried out by the crowds. Truly, this man is the son of God. That's how you prepare for the day of worship. You, can you confess the truth about Jesus. Pilate refused, the soldier accepted. And that's the difference between, the people, between people in the world. It's the only significant, lasting, eternal difference between all of humanity. There are those who reject Jesus, and there are those who believe upon Jesus. And for all of eternity, they have two different fates. Those who reject him go on to a life, an eternal life without him, suffering for their sins. Those who accept him go on to eternal life with him, 
never suffering again. On the day he dies, the gospel of Jesus Christ, notice this, goes from Jerusalem to North Africa with Simon of Cyrene to the Roman Empire with the soldier. The gospel is meant to go to the ends of the world, to every people and every nation. And on the day that he's crucified, it begins like yeast to work through the world. It's only for men to accept it. Now notice the last group of disciples, the women and Joseph of Arimathea. The women are mentioned in verses 40 and 41. And Joseph and the women are mentioned again in verses 43 to 47. They are mourners. They mourn the Savior's death. Notice the women looked on as Jesus died on the cross. Joseph asked for Jesus' body and prepared the body for burial in the cave. When the Romans and the Jewish religious leaders exposed his naked body and mocked him, the women and, Jesus, the, the women and Joseph honored him and clothed him. And for the women, this was not just like one day where they got it right. Notice the text says they had been with Jesus since Galilee. Basically the life of his ministry. It's the women who had been trustees of Jesus. It's many of the women who had been supplying for his ministry, learning from him, sitting at his feet. Mary and Mary and Salome. And it says here a lot of others would follow him. I don't want this to become a source of pride, but I do wish it would be encouragement. Isn't it true that for the history of the church, some of the very best followers of Jesus are women? Men get the press. We talk about Peter, we talk about Paul. But right there, steady plotting, faithful, grinding, giving, serving, rejoicing, mourning, from the beginning to the end, are God's women. Faithful women are meant to be praised. They are meant to be celebrated. They're meant to be encouraged. They're meant to be held up as models of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Beloved, clap if you want to. Surely everyone who knows a Christian woman should have been clapping. But listen, one of the reasons I think that discipleship is so lopsided and churches are so sick today is, is, is precisely this reason that we don't have in too many churches any place of prominence for women. In, any place where they're really lifted up to be looked at as patterns for faithful discipleship. We create little women's ministry ghettos where only women can look at them. But I'm led to believe that this scripture is given to the whole church, men and women, and that we are meant as men and women, boys and girls, to see in our sisters the very presence of Christ, to see in their lives the the pattern for following Christ, to see in their examples, examples for us to learn from and to emulate. And you know what happens when we don't have places like that? I'm going to tell you what happens. I'm going to tell you what happens. Some reach for places that the scripture forbids and churches just start to turn to fight about the quote-unquote roles of women. 
So if the only place of prominence in your imagination for the Christian life is right here where I'm standing in the pulpit, and you have some sense that it's an injustice that, that, that women aren't held up to be examples of the Christian life, guess what you'll fight about? You'll fight about the pulpit. You'll fight about the pulpit. And despite what the Bible says in 1 Timothy 2, you'll fight for women to preach and to, to be pastors and things of that sort. I think there's a yearning there that's getting expressed wrongly in contrary to the Scripture. That if we had a healthier discipleship culture, if we had a healthier culture of recognizing women and celebrating women and platforming women in all the appropriate ways, there's only one that's not allowed in the Scripture, in all the other appropriate ways, then our notions of discipleship would get healthier be more complete. And our sisters would flourish more because they're being celebrated and encouraged. And I think that's how Jesus would have it because he had women disciples with him for the whole of his ministry. For the whole of his ministry. As a church, we should pray about this and work on this. But then notice also Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph is a religious leader, you remember, and, and now he's got, to, he's got to get over his own fear of man. The first time we meet Joseph, he's kind of asking some quiet questions about Jesus. And as the other religious leaders are looking to condemn Jesus, he's like, does our law condemn a man before it hears him? They shut that down. But now at the end of the gospel, Joseph is like, you know, okay, they tripping. They done killed Jesus. I'm going to get the body. And he goes and he gets Jesus' body and lays the Lord in his own tomb. He prepares the body with a, with a shroud, with a linen shroud, and he, he buries the Son of God. So as far as Joseph knows, he has now began to follow Jesus at the end, to the end. And that's what discipleship looks like. You may not have become a Christian at five years old. You may have become a Christian at 55 years old or 65 years old, 75 years old, and, and you're near the end of your life. This is what Jesus says in a parable. Your reward will be no less than the reward of the one who started working at six in the morning. So for whatever days you have left for my older saints, follow Jesus. Be faithful to Jesus. Even on the days that look like cataclysmic mourning, on the days that look like the sun is going to hide forever, on the days when the earthquakes and temples and veils are torn in two, on the days when it looks like the thing you love most has been slaughtered and buried, even on those days when you don't know quite how to lift your head, but everything feels like a funeral, still follow Jesus. Still press after Jesus. Still trust in Jesus. Still praise Jesus. Still look for the coming of Jesus. Still believe in the Son of God. And this is what I know. And this is what the Bible tells me. That no one who puts their faith in Jesus will ever be put to shame. Will ever be put to shame. So, beloved, if you're Joseph in this text, if you're the women in this text, if you're Simon of Cyrene in this text, follow Jesus until the end. If you live for Jesus, then when you die for Jesus, you'll have much more than if you didn't live for Jesus. Your reward in heaven will be great. Follow Jesus until the end. Follow him until he comes. Follow him, and you will never regret it. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for Jesus, your son, our great Savior, our great high priest. 
the one who gave his life as a ransom for us, to purchase us back from death, to purchase us back from sin, to purchase us back from the judgment of hell, which we deserve because of sin, and to present us faultless in your presence. We praise our great high priest. We thank you for so great a salvation, and we pray never, 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 never let us neglect it. Keep us, O Lord, so that we would not turn away from the truth as Pilate did. Purify our hearts so that we not be motivated by something sinful as the religious leaders were. Keep us focused on Jesus and focused on his cross and his resurrection and focused on his mission in the world so that we're not distracted, answering questions, pursuing things that don't ultimately matter. Give us an eternal perspective, we pray. And then make us so many Simons of Cyrene who enter into the Savior's suffering. Make us so many Roman soldiers who are compelled to preach the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. Make us so many weeping women who are there from the beginning to the end, following in faith. And make us so many Josephs of Arimathea who take care of the Lord's work until he comes. Make us the church that you would have us to be. Help us to forget ourselves that we might live for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.